Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Batya Unger-Sargon. And this is The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So today we're talking about cancel culture. Uh, Badia, I know that many people have tried to cancel me. Has anyone ever tried to cancel you before? Yes, they have definitely tried to cancel me. Uh, I'm so glad that we're both still standing somehow. <laughs> well, all the credit, of course, to our very trustworthy employer, Newsweek. Thanks for thanks <laughs> thanks for employing two people for whom the cancel culture mobs have have ferociously come after at times. But um, we're going to actually get a real debate today on this topic. We're going to have people on opposing sides. It's certainly coming at least from very different perspectives. So, uh, Bob, did you want to just tell us a little bit about who we're going to hear from on this very, very important and timely debate? Yeah, we're so thrilled to have Camille Foster, the co-founder of Freethink and the co-host of the Fifth Column podcast, and Virginia Heffernan, a contributing editor at Wired, a co-host of Slate's Trumpcast podcast, and a columnist at the Los Angeles Times. They're both so smart and so interesting, and I'm so excited for this debate. So without further ado, this is The Debate, a podcast brought to you by Newsweek. Stay tuned. Camille Foster and Virginia Heffernan right now. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So today we are debating one of the issues that I think is most contemporary, that is most contentious, that is most all over the airwaves, no matter where you get your news, on TV, radio, print, Twitter, whatever it may be, we are talking about cancel culture. So, Badia, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we're going to have debating this today? We could not be more thrilled to have Camille Foster, the co-founder of Freethink and the co-host of the wildly popular Fifth Column podcast, and Virginia Heffernan, contributing editor at Wired Magazine, a co-host of Slate's Trumpcast podcast, and a columnist at the Los Angeles Times. These are two people who are completely original thinkers, and we just could not be more thrilled. Virginia and Camille, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the debate. Thank you, Batia and Newsweek. Hi, yes. Camille. Howdy. Thank you so much for the invitation. I, and I appreciate that very generous, generous, if, if a little overzealous uh, introduction. <laughs> well, we are nothing. On, on if, my part, anyways. <laughs> we are nothing if not overzealous at the debate at Newsweek. So um, I want to start with definitions. I know, I know everybody hates the phrase cancel culture, but that is what we're talking about. That is something that is in the zeitgeist, in the atmosphere. So why don't we start with definitions? You know, for lack of a better term, what is cancel culture? Camille, let's start with you. Uh, well, yes, I do, in fact, hate the phrase. I think I'm on record about that. Uh, but what I hate about it is the fact that it emphasizes in, in practice kind of the cancellation and not the cultural bit. Uh, and I think cancel culture is the prevailing sort of social milieu that we operate in, uh, where I think as a result of a number of different factors, um, but perhaps pri primarily um, the proliferation of new kinds of technologies that allow us to quickly share different things and come together and coalesce as groups, um, we have embraced a set of kind of social norms that make us much more likely to engage in kind of mobbings and censure. And rather than trying to engage with people and have conversations, engage in kind of public criticism of ideas that we dislike, uh, we attempt to excommunicate people. Uh, and in certain cases seem to want to just kind of end them completely. Imagine being in a circumstance where you can't work, you can't live in our neighborhood because you have the wrong sorts of ideas. And again, rather than have a conversation about those ideas, it merely becomes, we will, we will silence you. There's a competition about the feelings um, and notions of safety taking eminence over any notion that we need to actually value a plurality of thought and perspectives. Like it's very 
very ironic that we live in an era when we talk a great deal about diversity and inclusion. And so in a very real sense, the ethos of cancellation culture is actually exclusion and monoculture and conformity of perspective that is driven so much by kind of this forceful ostracization of people who are perceived to have the wrong sorts of ideas. Virginia, do you agree with that? Just the definition of cancel culture? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm gonna um, push in the direction of the sort of linguistic philosophy that I that I want to bring to the conversation. So from the beginning, get the edge on definition. I think I'm with with uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, who just thought um, we don't need to bother with definitions when ordinary language. We know cancel culture when we see when when we see it. We don't have to talk about the limit cases. Is this or is this not a cancellation? We're just in a time where it's an awkward word, but it defines a, I think, a pervasive, if we're going to talk sort of sensory, emotional, a pervasive sense that we're on tenterhooks all the time. Um, that if, if canceled by the right, you could you know, get swatted. You could get uh, credible death threats. If canceled by the left, you could lose your job and you know, be, as, um, as Camille says, excommunicated forever from polite society. So um, those two threats keep us on our toes. That feeling of being on our toes is how I would describe cancel culture without getting too precise about what does and doesn't count as a cancellation. Okay, so let's move in from definition to how you evaluate cancel culture. So Virginia, the most exciting and surprising part of your position is that while you agree with Camille more or less on the definition, you actually defend cancel culture and and you defend it as a person who whose opinion has actually been forged in the fires of cancellation herself. You've been canceled both by the right and by the left in very extreme ways. So why don't you tell us briefly about those experiences and how they shaped your view? I mean, how you came to defend this thing that um, has actually impacted you so deeply and so negatively. Yeah, well, negatively, deeply, yes. Negatively, I don't know. I mean, I sometimes I think that I'm, um, you know, I, I came to the internet very early when it was ARPANET era in the, in the 1970s and ended up my first kind of, um, experience with polemics was mixing it up with ham radio and CB radio um, and some, um, you know, merchant marines who were using communication technology in the various very earliest days of the internet. I think Camille and I have in common that it's that you know communication technology and even now AI or something we both are very interested in. But so th- it was pretty bruising. It was very anonymous, and it was um, you didn't you know people were um, short tempered about. Um, other people's opinions. And because when I got in there, the the first uh, message board I joined had all this Dungeons and Dragons apparatus. There were sort of damsels and steeds and lots of obsession with Led Zeppelin. We also had masters and slaves. It wasn't exactly an S&M kind of thing. And remember, I was a child, but the master could kill you and knock you off the entire internet um, if you said something that displeased him. And often it was profanity. Um, and anyone could be the master. You just had to be the first person to join that day um, because it went off overnight. 
uh, like old television. So you, so at five in the morning, if you got up early and you got a code that would circulate, someone would call you and tell you this is the code from the computer center. You signed on, you were the master. So then it was like Augusta Country Club or like Fisher's Island or something. You could be like, if you're wearing white, if you're half Jewish, no women today. No, you know, you, you could just be a total elitist asshole and kick off whoever you wanted. And so finding your way to stay on and not be canceled um, while you talked was really important. So they kicked off people who used all caps. That was like sort of in, in public space, you know, who did reply all, made reply all mistakes. You were a bad player. You got kicked off. So I sort of thought of my views. And again, I could be like a troubled street kid telling you that my beatings made me better, you know, and in fact, they just traumatized me. But I really came to believe that that was the way to have rigorous discussions. And I felt very, um, you know, I was seven, eight, nine, ten, and trying to talk about Reaganomics. And nothing <laughs> felt better than being taken seriously in this world. Um, and then later, when I started writing the first article I ever wrote for Slate in the 90s, it was about Rosie O'Donnell. The responses were... Uh, I'm canceling my subscription. Um, you should be fired. Does your mother have any children who don't have brain damage? Um, I pity you. You know, that the usual leading up to worse than ISIS, which I started to get in 2012. Um, so, um, so I sort of thought that was like the way people were supposed to interact at high levels of debate. Um, and it was sort of aspirational how, more, how difficult it was. Now, granted, I was 10. 11 at the time of the Reaganomics conversations, and I had nothing to lose. I was on an anonymous name, Athena, naturally, impressive <laughs> online <Naturally>. avatar. <laughs> um, I think I, I tricked everyone. Um, and, um, and, so, and also there could be an element of bad faith in thinking that I like these tough conversations. But, uh, you know, like Camille, lots of those early internet users, so this is right before the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Foundation or in the age of Stuart Brand, were very much libertarians. And, you know, like there just was no crying in baseball, you know? Um, I mean, we were literally talking about killing people for writing in all caps. Um, mm. So the metaphors were, you lose if you're not really good at this. And when I see that happening on Twitter again, you know, people being obliged to read, read the room or learn idioms that aren't their own. And it's incredibly hard. And when I don't want to do it, I just get off Twitter. But if I do want to do it, those are the rules of the game. And that's how I feel about cancellation too. So as it's been, I can tell you my sad stories about 2012 and more recently with Dr. Carlson. Um, but I do think that this is what I signed up for. And I think it's made me a better writer. So when I wrote as a creationist, so a believer in the in the creation story in the Bible, um, which didn't go over very well with lots of secular atheists, journalists, it turns out, um, who believe that creationism is something to be taught uh, in retrograde Texas public schools that keep people down forever, or that it has, uh, or there are shades of all kinds of things in it, racism in it. Um, so that didn't go over well with them. It doesn't also go over well to say that, you know, apart houses that are listed should also include a metric for how many guns are owned around them, because it turns out gun owners actually don't like their neighborhoods to be known for gun ownership. So that didn't do well with the Tucker Carlson crowd. 
Um, so the, both of those things, though, gave me a huge insight. I mean, blew open my idea of what creationism stands for in the first case and what's going on in our neighborhoods um, in the second place in a, in, a, in a fragmented country. So were they bad for me? I think they were good for me in terms of making me a more rigorous thinker. So Camille, a lot to respond to there. Um, why don't you tell us your view of cancel culture and, and please pick up on any threads that you want to respond to. Well, as, as I'm listening to Virginia talk there, I'm certainly about kind of the metaphorical experience of people kind of threatening violence and all kinds of other things when you run afoul of social norms. I mean, I'm imagining the kind of world that we want to live in. Um, and there are two things that are really, really important to me when I think about the liberal culture that we all exist in today. And I, and I, if Jonathan Rausch is listening anyplace, I hope that he forgives me because I've, I've recently read uh, an early copy of his new book, which I think is absolutely extraordinary. And I, I think that the case he lays out both in his new book and in his, his previous book um, are for a liberal science, for kind of this culture um, that is all about discovering truth through this critical process of debating ideas and having the ability to kind of involve ourselves in discussion uh, with, with people who disagree with us, a conception of diversity that requires us to actually learn to be more tolerant, to be resilient in the face of what we know to be the case, that people of different perspectives, even if they happen to kind of look alike, um, are going to have different ideals and that a diverse environment isn't one where people kind of look different. It's one where you can actually have those differences, navigate those differences, and still collaborate successfully. Um, and I worry about us creating a world where, and, and I would just ask anyone listening to think about what they think the world feel, feels like in general. Is it a minefield where you're just trying to survive, mm -hmm. where you're imagining all of these ways that you might run afoul of the new norms because it's completely unforgiving? Or is it a garden? where of course there are hazards. There are places where you might trip, a, a pitfall, a bush that has some thorns that you're not expecting, but there are also like beautiful roses and all sorts of other things that you can discover. Um, and we can experience the garden together or we can experience the minefield together. Mm -hmm. And I think we are much more of that minefield than that garden right now. And I think that that is something that is, is very concerning and has a material chilling effect. And you know, it's, it is possible to have kind of cultural innovation in both of those worlds. In one sense, in the garden, like you can imagine us building new tools and finding new ways to talk to each other and even cultivating new social norms that make it easier for us to live with the new reality that we find ourselves in where everyone has this ready access to information. And occasionally that information is sort of less than true. Will we yeah. develop tools to deal with that reality so that we can navigate those things and adjudicate truth better or do we innovate in a different sort of way where we're focused on being punitive and we're focused on getting rid of the people who have the wrong sorts of ideas? In the past, that's meant waterboarding, crucifixion, an iron cross, a guillotine. Now, shadow banning? Like mm -hmm. That is the question and that's the choice that we have to make. And I do think that a world where we're less willing to experiment with ideas, with new modes of living, um, where persuasion is not nearly as important to us as vilification, um, is, a, is a dangerous sort of world. And the trade-off there is that we perhaps become less acquainted with, with truth. We, it becomes more difficult for us to exchange error for truth um, in the prevailing culture. And certainly far, far more likely that we'll see people embracing fundamentalism in all 
kinds of contexts where we do not want that. We don't want fundamentalism in our science. We don't want public health to become fundamentalist. We don't want journalism to become fundamentalist because then you get into situations where you have, say, a global pandemic and questions about where this damn thing originated. And it becomes completely uncouth to talk about the possibility that it may have, say, originated in a lab when the origins of the pandemic that we've just experienced, for example, are very, very important for us to get to the bottom of. If it's a matter of us experiencing this thing again or not, the truth becomes all important and questions about sort of feelings and political loyalties and the sensibility that you might be sending the wrong signal by embracing the wrong perspective, not wrong in the sense that it's untrue, but wrong in the sense that, well, it sounds like you're with those people. Are you with them or are you with us? Mm-hmm. That is a really untenable situation. Um, I mean, it- and I think, I think it's, if, if we're talking about what we're for, the question mm-hmm. becomes, is, is truth kind of all important? Or is it sort of a sense of kind of safety? Is it a sense okay. of belonging and inclusiveness? Um, and inclusiveness, again, in that fundamentalist sense, as opposed to inclusiveness in the sense of we allow you to be here despite the fact that we disagree with you. We know that we have an obligation to contend with your perspective um, as opposed to try to suppress it because suppression doesn't get rid of bad ideas. Suppression doesn't get rid of bad people. In many instances, it may drive them underground and in a connected world like ours, where anonymity is a thing, uh, the proliferation of horrible perspectives um, in that ecosystem is, is something that we're going to have to contend with. Camille, I think it's a really great point. I mean, look, as kind of the, you know, as the, as the conservative co-host on this podcast, I, I've seen this firsthand, honestly. I mean, I remember back during the 2016 presidential primary. I mean, I remember a lot of times when kind of mainstream kind of conservative kind of um, immigration restrictionist sentiment was, was told that it was kind of xenophobic, it was racist, you couldn't air these views. Where do people who hold those views go? Well, they go to V-Day or they go to kind of these kind of white supremacists, white nationalist websites. I mean, like the people are not necessarily going to give up their views for being told that their views are bigoted. They're going to find like, frankly, just worse, less reputable, more outlandish outlets for those views. Um, so, Virginia, I, I'd be kind of curious how you how you respond to that. And I kind of think back just a little bit. I mean, I think Camille's making a kind of a broader point here. I think it's important to underscore this point, which is kind of the historical conception of why we engage in conversation, like the goal of public discourse, qua public discourse, going back mm-hmm. to the academy in ancient Greece. I mean, you know, I, was, uh, I went to law school. In law school, the, they teach you via the Socratic method. Where does that come from? It comes from Socrates. What is the Socratic method? Well, it's asking you questions with the ultimate purpose of arriving at the truth. Um, and I think kind of one of the common refrains of kind of the critics of modern cancel culture is that um, it's more about the narrative, so to speak, than the truth. Um, I'd be curious how you respond to that kind of strand of criticism. I mean, Socrates, yes, I think the gadfly is alive and well in the form of the Twitter bird. And the fact that we all use Twitter so um, aggressively and yet loathe ourselves for doing so um, is, um, I think, further proof that Twitter is like serving this. I mean, it, it's a tonic. It's a it's a gadfly. Like the, the, the New York Times in some cases seems like it can't move for fear of what Twitter will do. Um, and, uh, and a lot of times when we think we're talking generally about something like cancel culture, we're talking about Twitter. So in any case, Twitter, I mean, Socrates was maddening to people. He was meant to be a gadfly, um, but he wasn't, his method wasn't meant to arrive at the truth so much as to strip away the lies. 
And I do think that the conversation about, so let, like, let's just take some bugbears. I mean, I, I think so a really specific one, the lab leak theory is a good one to talk about, but I'll just quickly talk about critical critical race theory. So all of these are just memes, right? CRT, let's not, let's black box what that might mean. But if CRT is doing the work that when, you know, when I did deconstruction in uh, graduate school, it's doing the work of taking apart certain assumptions we have about the way the world works. It's very trippy at its best that you just, you know, you start to think that there's this existing binarism um, between the global South and the, and, the, and the global North or white people and black people or people with straight hair and people with curly hair that exists in our uh, discourse and that we need to be constantly um, aware of and calling attention to. It's, very, it's, a, it's a really interesting way of looking at the world. And it sparks a great deal of curiosity. Now, it does this explain everything? No, but to like, a person with an open imagination, you like you don't want fewer tools for stripping away your delusions. You want more tools for stripping away your delusions. It's not a favor to a friend to let them hold on to pieties and cliches and and unexamined, unrigorous ways of thinking about the world. You know, it's salubrious. It's healthy for us to to um, give us more tools to think critically about the world. Um, I mean, I, you know, what I don't quite understand about everyone who doesn't want to do any critical race theory or doesn't want to, you know, read Luce Rigore's book, The Speculum of the Other, because it sounds too fanciful, is it is, if you're, if you are, if you like mental pleasures, these things afford us mental pleasures, more pleasure, more garden, um, and, and less of the, like, less of the field sown with salt the sterility where nothing can grow, where you're either woke or anti-woke. I think these things lead to a proliferation of interesting thinking and imaginative thinking like Socrates, you know, as Socrates, as as Plato would have had us had us do. So I, I, I do wonder just how much of the distinction here really is kind of semantic. I mean, I'm happy that we both, you know, that you both kind of defined well, this is at the outset, and I kind of it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from the ancient Chinese military general Sun Tzu, who famously said that a battle is won before it is fought; it is won by choosing the terrain on which it is fought. You know, Virginia, you said like when we speak of cancel culture, we're just talking about Twitter here. I'm not so sure I agree with that, honestly. I mean, people have tried to cancel me on Twitter, so I'm very familiar with that line of attack. Uh, it happens uh, more often than I would care to admit. But when I think of cancel culture, and Camille, happy to have you kind of jump in and respond to this. Uh, what I think of a little more honestly, more tangibly, and from my perspective, more pernicious is, for example, kind of Barry Weiss's most recent, most recent podcast episode where she had on, um, you know, it's, it's a Palestinian American um, whose entire business, whose entire livelihood was effectively uh, like can't canceled in kind of grassroots astroturfing fashion because his daughter, when she was 13 years old, tweeted something horrific. Um, and you know, I, I, I think back, I mean, like, th there's a lot of this now. I mean, frankly, you kind of see people like on Yelp trying to leave like one star reviews to get someone's business kind of shut down because they don't hold the quote unquote correct political view. So we're talking here about like, you have, has none of you here been victim of a one star campaign on Amazon? I mean, it is the worst. It really is the worst. Um, I mean, that can really affect your life. Like all of this is about hurting your livelihood. I don't think we're just talking about symbols where there are like real people whose livelihoods suffer. I mean, I went to income zero job retraining in 2012 when the left canceled me. You know, I, I don't want to I don't want to uh, minimize 
um, ha the consequences this can have in the, this this way of uh, seeing the discourse can have um, in real lives. Right. So I, I, I when it comes to money. Right. So for I guess for for you, Camille, my question would be. Um, you know, I, I, I presume you have no objection whatsoever, obviously, to people like criticizing, rebuking on Twitter. I mean, that's kind of just the nature of the battle of ideas, obviously. Right. But um, I, I guess I'd be curious for you to kind of elaborate on like where we can where, where we as a, as a society can kind of draw a line between kind of healthy criticism, trying to arrive at the truth or grander norms versus kind of this like one star Yelp, Amazon style campaigning. Yeah, well, interestingly, I'm. I'm I'm actually curious to hear Virginia to talk a little bit more about this as well, because she's had some direct experience with this. And while I've had people criticize me in in different ways online, sometimes in groups, uh, there has been no mobbing to try and get me canceled in a sort of fundamental sense. There's a, a very real sense in which I take perspectives on things that if I had different characteristics, I imagine that people would come for me, which is interesting in and of itself that we live in a time where this cancellation, it, it kind of operates uh, according to principles that will punish you, whether or not you tick certain box uh, in terms of your identity um, and not on the merits of the particular argument that you're raising. I think that's something that's worth in, worth noting. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about just how fertile an environment, a, a, a world where we actually embrace or at least don't condemn the values that lead people to want to engage in these one-star campaigns versus embracing and lifting up competing representations of the views that um, I, um, I think that that is something that's really worth contending with because it seems to me that, that it is objectively true that it is worse to live in a world where people are interested in engaging in those one-star campaigns and the fact that you'll often see these these the rabble that is engaged in the cancellations begin canceling one another in really destructive ways. Like, yeah. I, I know people who cheer that on when they see it happening to the side that they dislike. For me, it's just like this this ugly downward spiral of awful. Um, the the critical race theory debate, um, which Virginia just mentioned a moment ago, I think is, is actually very instructive in this way. What you actually have happening here, so far as I can tell, is after the racial reckoning, um, and I, I always twitch a little bit when I use the word reckoning in that context, because it doesn't feel like one to me. Um, not not something we're, we're getting close to the truth, but that's another topic for another day. But after the racial reckoning, there were a number of people who thought it was a good idea for us to take a look at our curriculums and take a look at various institutions across society and find ways to bring things into alignment and find ways to reform them and make certain that certain kinds of views were being um, that were, be were being proliferated um, and that other things were being undermined. And they were in some instances trying to inculcate that into curriculums. The, the worst excesses of that are probably in places like Brooklyn and San Francisco, right? And the CRT, banned CRT campaigns that have cropped up now, which I think are oftentimes deeply misguided and try to pursue reform in ways that are just destructive of first principles that are very important to me, like the First Amendment. Um, those things cropped up because people were concerned about indoctrination through public school curriculums. And unfortunately, what's actually happened is in many instances, they're like, well, no, no, this is the kind of indoctrination that we want in public school curriculums is the response. 
And there's a genuine kind of spiraling inward towards like greater conformity. They're the worst, they're monsters. And the direct response to this cancel CRT movement is very much the same sort of thing. You won't even let us talk about the truth. Look at those monsters who, who are the wrong kind of people when there is an alternative, there's another path, which is to teach the kind of Socratic reasoning and critical thinking that we just talked about a moment ago. And the question becomes whether or not the, the public institutions that we depend upon to educate children are institutions that ought to be focused on you know, indoctrinating the pupils that they have custodianship over for a good portion of the day or whether or not they're supposed to be teaching them those critical skills so that they can navigate the complicated world that we all live in together. Mm -hmm. And I think that that extended riff from me is illustrative of the difference between kind of cancellation and fundamentalism versus an, a, a universe where we're actually having difficult conversations. We're navigating different difficult conversations and we're genuinely privileging diversity of thought with an expectation that we haven't arrived at the end of history and the end of philosophy. There are more things for us to discover together and we need to make certain that we have the kind of philosophical environment that allows a, a world of that sort of thriving. We're going to let you respond to that, Virginia, but we need to take a break right now. Our guests are Camille Foster and Virginia Heffernan. This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a podcast brought to you by Newsweek. Our guests are Camille Foster, co-founder of Freethink and co-host of the Fifth Column podcast, and Virginia Heffernan, a contributing editor at Wired, a co-host of Slate's Trumpcast podcast, and a columnist at the Los Angeles Times. Thank you both so much for being here. So we're having this great debate about cancel culture, which it turns out is actually a debate about the limits of enforcing what kind of a society we want to live in, what kind of a society we want to pass on to our children, I think, in a lot of cases. And it strikes me as, um, in a way, a question about sort of where the limit between enforcing social mores and violence lies. So Camille, you spoke a little bit about how people with wrong ideas, you know, they don't just go away, they go to VDARE. And actually, I want you to respond to that a little bit later, because it does strike me as possibly a bit of a slippery slope. But Virginia, to, to the points you've been making, this may sound very pedestrian, but cancel culture is mean. I mean, it's cruel. And you personally have been subjected to a lot of cruelty don't we want to live in a society that discourages cruelty? I mean, can we all agree that cruelty and meanness are, are bad and wrong and should be discouraged? So why don't you answer that? And also just tell us a little bit more about that experience that you had and, and how it, it, it didn't lead to where I think a lot of us think it, it might have led if we had had that experience. Yeah. Um, back to Camille's, just to start with Camille's metaphor that I'm still kind of mulling over and probably will be for days about the garden versus the minefield. And the garden, of course, has snakes and thorns and other other things, but it ha there are opportunities for bounty and enjoyment in the garden, where in the minefield, you're just trying to dodge the bad. Um, and I like this. 
And I also think it's very important that we recognize that it's a metaphor. So cruel, mean, maybe fair enough. But when people talk about, um, you know, and, and Barry Weiss, who's written very engagingly on this, and also Taylor Lorenz on the other side, tend to use very heightened language to talk to the things that happen to us in digital space and slip very quickly into talking about violence. So on a, in spite of the threats of violence, uh, against me, and there have been many. I've only one time had a police guard drive past my house, and nothing happened. And the, even the people like Kathy Griffin, who have had to have a security detail for years because Trumpites have um, been issuing credible threats, FBI evaluated credible threats, has never had anyone touch her body. So we're talking about the most extreme cases rarely end with tissue damage to the body. So we're talking in these two different worlds. It's, it, it, you know, I don't like the word toxic. Toxic was a word used to describe novels in the 19th century, that they mm. filled their veins with poison because they made you think that you should cheat on your husband, right? No, there's no poison going on here. We have to remember the First Amendment protects something other than actual weaponry. It doesn't, if we're not, if, if we're talking about what's protected by the First Amendment, we're talking about free speech, we are not talking about toxins, poisons, daggers, um, or even cancellation in the sense that it implies death of the body. So it's really important to me to simplify this as a kind of sticks and stones thing, to remember that I am sitting here in a very comfortable place at any given time, even if someone is writing to me, you're worse than ISIS and should be shot. And my cortisol response and my, uh, my um, mood is my responsibility. You know, my immune system is my responsibility in this world. And if I didn't, and I said, I'm, you know, a person who got into this early, who got into these kind of bruising debates early, I knew what I was getting into. And I, you know, in graduate school, it was a lot of Oxford style debate. You know, we, um, you all referred to the, the Socratic method used in law schools. Like we're not, you know, just your average Joes that want to have a nice conversation. We're people that want to um, match wits with other people. And sometimes that doesn't look, um, it doesn't look like peaceful to, uh, to people who don't like this very rarefied and strange activity known as debate. Um, but I am one of the people that likes it. Um, you know, another reference to Socrates, Plato, you know, at the Agora makes his name as a as a philosopher by shouting at shoppers, you know, just shouting at people who are consumers spending all their money and starts haranguing them and saying, you know, is this all that's important in the world is, you know, isn't there something more? And the shoppers in response say, I just want to be left in peace. Well, there is no philosopher philosophy without that tension, without someone saying, look, I just want to buy these awesome silks and things and, you know, have my nice life, which, by the way, that person should make the case for that, either by deafening himself to Plato's prize or by, you know, making a, a case in advance that he's got a better life than this, than the, than this, uh, you know, weird philosopher on the street. But I just it was never committed to having like a, a sanguine, unchanging philosophy of life. I just it, it just was never it's never something I wanted. And if I run across, you know, Abatia or Camille's writing, um, I usually think this is an opportunity 
to, I mean, I, you know, not always like this. Sometimes I want to take a nap, but I usually think what an opportunity to evaluate a new set of arguments um, that will make me, you know, it's, uh, I don't know if any of you have seen change my view on Reddit, but, um, you know, everybody should check out Virginia's beautiful article. Where was that article about it? Was it oh, wired? wired? Yeah. 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 Amazing. It was a, you know, a Scottish teenager um, set up a uh, realized that he and his friends all agreed on um, at the time. It was like opinions about the plot of Breaking Bad was one of the things they discussed. Scottish Glaswegian pop music, another one of their topics, and also Scottish independence. They all agreed and they were so provincial that they felt like, God, we really need some other perspectives to change our views. And so they invented a very, very um, formal way of submitting a view to have it changed. And I said, but you don't never want to be the person who's like wants to submit your view pre like all set up for someone else to overthrow it. You know, you want it to come in armored. And he said, are you kidding? If you're wrong, you have the opportunity to be right, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, and I just, that sort of, I don't know, energized entry into debates that, you know, when you see a sixties conversation involving, you know, Norman Mailer or James Baldwin, they're, they're like, or Jermaine Greer, they're just like gloves off. No one's doing any marketing, you know, no one's like trying to make memes. They're like time to talk at the height of their um, intellectual powers. So Camille, why don't you respond to that? Especially, I think that the question of violence, um, you know, the, 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 the point that Virginia made early on, um, you know, we, we do tend to descend into language that elides the difference between nonviolence and violence. You know, of course there can be violent speech, but speak to that. Yeah, no, I, I I completely concur with that. Um, I think there is a great deal of kind of extreme rhetoric um, on on all sides of this debate, but throughout society more broadly, and a lot of it leads to to hysteria that concerns me. Um, I also think it's really important for us to acknowledge the the rather seamless cascade from actual intolerance that's just rhetorical to outright hostility that can occasionally lead to meaningful acts of violence, um, whether it be property destruction, which I do think is violence. I know that that's contested yeah. by some people <laughs> um, and, and actual bodily harm visited upon people. And, you know, I've been very concerned for a while now and certainly over the course of the last, you know, 13, 14 months about the, the rates of political violence um, or at least the, the mm-hmm prevalence of political violence in our polity. Um, I think the events of last summer, which were greeted by some people as this kind of awakening, um, left me very distraught. Uh, this kind of wholesale willingness on some people's parts to not only embrace like the destruction of property and uh, various other kinds of political violence to find excuses for it based on you know the, the ideological justification for the particular protests that were happening and to criticize people who were who were inclined to say that maybe we shouldn't be doing this. You know, you have books being published in defense of looting, for example. And I don't draw a great distinction between that and the kind of violence that I saw playing out on January 6th in the Capitol. 
Um, and I think the fact that we have this sort of thing happening somewhat uniformly, and I could I could give you countless examples of it, quite frankly, like across recent years that I think would definitely qualify as political violence, which do in fact seem to be a, a trend away from where I thought we were in this country. The reality that when you are moving away from a culture that values civility and empathy and toleration and even experimentation and that prizes debate and understands that when you have certain values, you're always obliged to defend them, even your most sort of precious values. Um, and that if you don't defend them, if you're not actively involved in that project, sometimes while you may have the sort of better position and one that is perhaps in line with mine, you lack the ability to, to level a very good argument in defense of those traditions. And that is a very huge, profound risk. My concern is about um, kind of creating sufficient space for precisely what Virginia was describing a moment ago, those interactions that are happening online. Um, I, when I hear you talk about, you know, change my view on Reddit, um, it, it reminds me of just the genuine optimism that I have about the future and what it holds. And I'm actually one of those people who probably like, I, I like Twitter. Um, I like being on there, um, even, even with the abuse that I sometimes get on it. I think it allows for kinds of interactions that, you know, could not have happened under other circumstances where you can anonymously engage with people who disagree with you in totally respectful ways. There's a choice to be made, right? <laughs> you can be an asshole or you can be respectful and you can be endearing and you can try to genuinely learn from other people's perspectives in a way that is become, has become harder socially in many ways. If you have questions about um, uh, trans identity, for example, and you're interested in exploring these issues and getting those questions answered in a way that won't be potentially hazardous to you professionally, personally, socially, the, the best way to do that might be online in one of these forums. So I think that's very important. We, we talk a lot about like the, the kind of epistemic bubbles that are created online, mm -hmm. but it is also the case that the same technology gives us the power to disrupt those bubbles in, in rather radical and very sort of total ways. Um, so I'm, I am excited about that and I hope we give ourselves enough space to develop the, the kind of cultural antibodies to, to navigate mm -hmm. the new reality that we find ourselves in and to make the best use of these tools possible so that they can kind of bring us closer together and allow for more diversity of thought, um, as so, opposed to insisting that, you know, controllers prevent people from using these things in bad ways. So I, I'm really happy you went there, Camille, because this is actually exactly where I want to take my question to, to you, Virginia. You know, I'm, again, a lawyer by training. I think about the Constitution a lot. I think about kind of the, the preamble of the Constitution, the very first aim that the, that, that the framers in 1787 said they wanted to achieve was, quote, a more perfect union. Um, we have oftentimes deviated quite far from that. Um, obviously, there was the uh, uh, lowest of all low points in the 1860s. But I, I, I think for a lot of people, especially in kind of the right of center circles that I inhabit, there is kind of a feeling that this country is really kind of heading towards the brink, um, that we are we have never been more divided. Um, especially a lot of conservatives feel that, you know, uh, the ruling class, the elites, no matter what kind of phraseology or nomenclature you want to use are kind of arrayed against them, all these both public and private sector institutions, you know, uh, media, Hollywood, big tech, et cetera. And I just wonder if uh, doing anything other than kind of, uh, uh, you know, a condemning cancel culture, even if there is some sort of kind of philosophical or intrinsic merit, 
is as a purely pragmatic matter, just really playing with fire, frankly, um, given where we are as a country? Um, damn it. I think this is another time Camille and I are going to agree. I'm not Stephen Pinker <laughs> here, but I actually think we, things are like, things are not that bad. In fact, I think they're, you know, Emerson said, this is a good time, like all other times, if we, but know what to do with it. And I mm. think that's true now. I mean, it is at the beginning of the plague, at the beginning of the pandemic, I started reading plague literature and, you know, pretty much every time in history, it's been the end of the world. There's no time it hasn't been. Now, of course, Rome has to fall sometime and maybe we're at the moment in the, if the whole world is being played in an inspired piece of casting by the United States of America, as it usually is, maybe Rome, the United States of America is on its way to, you know, becoming a failed state. Um, but, um, but uh, you know, I actually think there's hope for the environment. I think we um, just ended a pandemic or a, in the process of ending it, at least in the United States. And, um, and we have a democratically elected a president elected in what, you know, every, all metrics call our fairest and, um, and freest election, presidential election in history. Um, and those things are all to the good. And we've uh, managed to this, you know, actual threat from the right wing has been subdued in amazing ways. I mean, Republicans, you know, like David Frum just used to despair that um, the far right would ever go back into its hidey hole. But, um, you know, it doesn't even exist on Twitter in the same way it used to, which was supposed to be the cesspool hidey pool, hidey hole. Now it's parlor and telegram and so forth. But like Q has been exposed. I mean, we can't be in, um, you know, what it, have they made 500 arrests from January 6th? We can't stay in a perpetual state of trauma. It's like D.W. Winnicott said, sometimes the patient needs to be told that the catastrophe for which, for fear of which he can't go on has already happened. <laughs> I love that. The, right? And we just, we we went, just went through a catastrophe. It's, it's like a trauma person that suffers trauma thinks that the thing that did happen is about to happen. It's like, you know, a time confusion. Um, and, um, and we can say this with all kinds of historic traumas, that the Holocaust, the worst thing that could possibly happen to a people happens. Now it seems like it's about to happen, but it has happened, which is the more terrible thing about it, is that those people are lost. We lost all these people to the pandemic. And we, instead of sitting and thinking like, this is amazing that the death mm -hmm. rates have gone down so much, we think something terrible is right around the corner. Now's the grieving time. Now's the quiet time. Now's the time where you say, well, this is going to be better, right? Because my grandmother's not going to die tomorrow since she already died yesterday. I was probably the most um, terrified for all four plus years of, um, you know, Trump's tyranny. And I still think that that was a terrible thing that happened to the U.S. But when I was panicked um, in the middle of the night, I told myself, if this ever ends, I will savor it. And I think that we managed to come through that threat to democracy. I just, whatever else you say about Donald Trump, the vulgarism, the racism, whatever, it's just, we had an anti-democratic president in a democratic nation. And it just was very um, scary and it's over. So I'm not sure that things are as fractious as they used to be. I mean, for one, I'd never met three of the four of you. Actually, I only met Batia since, um, since Trump became president. 
Um, would I ever be citing David from in a conversation in any other period, except, you know, in these post-Trump years? I, I mean, I'm astounded at how much the circle that I talk to has grown um, is since, um, since the president. Now, are we especially angry um, at, you know, certain neighbors or um, certain uh, conflicts have been teased out? Yes. But as I said, in my, you know, sort of one cheer for cancel culture, defensive cancel culture, is that I don't think that's the worst thing in the world, that some of um, that some of those, well, I don't think anything that puts pressure on people to think through, take Max Boot. Why was he a Republican all this time that I spent all this, you know, I spent all kinds of time avoiding talking to him because I thought he was um, communicating in bad faith. Well, he wrote a book talking about how he'd been in bad faith for his whole career, and now it's a lot easier to talk to him. Something that I think is super interesting is that, um, Virginia, I expected you to make the sort of classic pro-cancel culture argument that you hear people make, which is that, you know, this is accountability culture. This is the voices of the disenfranchised rising up and finally, thanks to social media, having a voice to speak back at their betters in a way they never could. You are essentially arguing the opposite, that this is an elite phenomenon of like the highest level of debate where we should be prepared to enter into the fires of, you know, the disapproval of our, you know, somewhat elite debate peers. I wonder if I'm, am I accurately summarizing what you're saying? And then um, I actually agree with that if, if so. And Camille, I wonder if you could also just respond to that this is an accountability culture argument because I think people often hear that. They often seem to fall prey to this view that this really is the masses rising up. And, and I think it's a fallacious argument and would love to hear you speak to that. So Virginia, why don't you go first? Tell me if I'm accurately representing what you're saying. And then Camille, if you could jump in. I think that there are now competitions um, for dominance or, or, or there are more languages, let's say, um, at the high table than there used to be. So even five years ago, I think everyone had to fit their arguments into standard, what I think of as like standard Anderson Cooper, American English, something like that, that like, you know, read like an, you know, an essay to get into the college Hamilton or, you know, the university of Michigan, that's how you're supposed to write. And I think there are a lot of different dialects now that are that are very difficult to learn, especially late in life when your you know mind is less open to them and less uh, less um, plastic. Um, and um, and those voices, I'm not sure if they're anti-elitist, although you know there are things that during AAPI um, Violence Month, you know, I learned about. I took the time to try to understand what Pacific Islanders are. What are their experiences? I've heard, I've heard um, Camille say that you know Asian. What could that mean? Such a big tent. So that took me a little while to figure out. Like, is like who identifies as Asian? What is Asian? Then I like just went down a road of thinking of what are people's first languages if they're from the Pacific Islands? Where are they? Um, you know, where do they live in the United States? Pacific Islander Americans. Um, what uh, you know? What are some of their cultural practices? I mean, you know, I have a corny way of doing my little anthropology, but if we're gonna like, if Pacific Islanders are gonna represent an interesting political group, I'd like at least to know, you know, like in third grade when I learned the Japanese tea ceremony, um, and then went to live in Tokyo, I'd like to know a little bit of that Pacific Island language so that I can start to understand how their experience 
and vocabulary and dialect and idiom differs from mine. So I do think there are other idioms at the table than there used to be. And that, you know, we no longer have to all aspire to sound like Anderson Cooper and then adjudicate uh, and then have our debates. I think as Josh said, have our debates in that language. And we talk about who wins the debate. If, you know, if Korean was Camille's first language and a tribal language was his second language and his third language was English, he'd be on a back foot in this conversation. But no, we all have American English first, I think. Um, and Batia, do you? I do. Yeah. Okay. So we all have American English first, but at least today our American English doesn't all sound exactly like Anderson Cooper. You know, Neil, do you want to respond? Yeah. Well, I, I want to start just by saying, I mean, I, I, I completely concur with Virginia's assessment of where we are. I, I don't think things are nearly as bad as, as many people imagine. Um, I, I do um, I, I love that she's the Emerson quote as well. Cause when I burdened my daughter with four names, um, the, the, <laughs> extra one was me insisting that one of her middle names should be Emerson. Um, so that's that, that quote works for me as well. Um, and, and I think it's, it's important to underscore that because from my standpoint, I mean, I, I want to kind of go back to, to this notion of there being kind of values that are associated with cancel culture, right? It, it, I think it's a tool, but it's a tool that operates uh, according to certain principles. And I think that the hysteria, the sense of sort of existential dread that there's this existential risk of your destruction is kind of part and parcel of cancel culture. The, the currency of the whole enterprise really is this notion that we are under threat and we are going to exercise power over you. We're not going to persuade you. We're not going to win the argument in that way. Um, we're going to exercise power to shut you down. Um, mm -hmm. which is, I think, very different than, you know, we just had the anniversary of the Loving case, which um, wow. was all about overturning these bans on interracial marriage across the country. It's one thing to overturn a ban. It's another thing to kind of definitively win the argument from a moral standpoint about, say, various issues related to um, civil rights um, and specifically issues related to whether or not people who look different from one another ought to be able to get married to each other. And I think we've, we actually went through doing the hard work of really persuading people about those things, not merely intimidating them into not sharing their perspective about this. And that is a very different project and a project that I don't think we're nearly as engaged in as we ought to be when we allow ourselves to believe that we're under you know, particular kinds of perilous threats. Um, and I, I don't think we're sufficiently sensitive to the ways that those kinds of cultural norms, the, the ones associated with cancel culture, um, have perhaps started to corrupt institutions that we all depend upon. Um, I worry a lot about the media industry in this post-Trump world, um, a media industry that immediately pivoted to, well, we have to tell the truth and we're going to we're going to police the truth and we're going to tell you the truth because these people are unique, despicable liars. Um, I think there's a sense in which they've kind of bought into an ethic of, of um, moral clarity, I think is what it's been described as by like uh, Wes Lowry um, versus this kind of ethic of object objectivity. And I have my own concerns about objectivity as an ethic for journalism, but the sensibility about moral clarity is something that has actually contributed to, I think some systematic errors um, and oversimplifications in ways that are genuinely harmful and have impaired the credibility of the journalistic enterprise 
have impaired the credibility of various institutions and have in many cases made them more monocultures that are less able to get at and understand the truth. And in my own experience, talking to people who work in the industry, less willing to even engage with complicating facts and details that might run afoul of the narrative that is important to certain to certain particularly vocal segments of the population because of the risk of cancellation, because of the risk of there being some sort of censure for arriving at the wrong conclusion because the evidence is pointing you in the direction of the wrong conclusion. You know, if I'm screaming abolish the police and you say, well, you know, violent crime is increasing, the response becomes, no, no, it can't be increasing. This is the wrong perspective, whether or not the facts say so. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that that's a, that's a very dangerous place for us to be. And I think very much where we are. Um, so while I'm, I'm optimistic, I do think we've had sort of worst times, so to speak, in the fairly recent past, like the 1970s were pretty bad. <laughs> like you had bombings going off pretty much every day for certain periods of that, of that, um, of that decade. Um, and you had a, a economic yeah. circumstance that was pretty damn dire. And you certainly weren't in the position to be able to arrest a global pandemic in the space of like 13 months. Um, and the fact that yeah. we kind of had like an actual remedy for this damn thing about a couple of weeks in is kind of incredible. We just needed some time to make certain that it worked and wouldn't kill everyone. Um, so, yeah. you know, we live in remarkable times. Um, I just I want our culture to kind of measure up to it. And I want us to have a culture that is sufficiently fertile that it can give us the tools to you know, deal with the problems that we're likely to be facing in the in the future. Um, and I think that that requires us to prize genuine diversity and to be able to actually navigate our disagreements and not merely shout down the people who have the wrong sorts of ideas. I think we could definitely go on here for hours, guys, but uh, we're running a bit long for the sake of our listeners and for the sake of your very busy schedules. We're probably going to have to call it there. But this has really been a terrific, fabulous, informative and just highly entertaining exchange. So thank you, Virginia and Camille, both so much for joining the debate podcast by Newsweek. Thanks, thank Josh. You. And thank you, Camille. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So, Badia, we've just heard an incredibly informative and uh, I thought highly engaging and entertaining uh, exchange. What were your kind of uh, high level takeaways from that? Yeah, it was amazing. They're both so smart and it was just so cool to be able to nail down exactly where the agreements were, exactly where the disagreements were. Um, you know, this is the first of many conversations we're going to be having about cancel culture. It, it's interesting because to, to me, it seems like there's sort of three positions on this argument. There's the sort of right wing Republican conservative position where a lot of conservatives feel that they are being canceled and mass shadow banned by social media and by big tech. And then you have the sort of far left defenders of cancel culture who say, you know, this isn't cancel culture, it's accountability culture, it's just the disenfranchised finally finding their voice and speaking up. And then you have this kind of liberal libertarian um, uh, rejection of both of those views, but that essentially says, you know, we need to insist on the values of debate and the values of free discourse if we want to live in a liberal society. And so in this instance, we had um, somebody from that camp, from the libertarian camp, Camille Foster, debating Virginia Heffernan, who was from the far left, who was really defending cancel culture in a way that I found very compelling. I don't think I agree with her, but um, she made a really strong case, don't you think? Yeah, it, it, it was really almost like kind of jarring at first. Maybe I don't 
watch enough MSNBC or listen or, you know, or read the New York Times editorial board off enough. But I, I feel like this is like the first time I've really gotten kind of like a deeply like philosophically informed, like very earnest, heartfelt defense of what we call cancel culture from someone who was effectively canceled, too. So, uh, I mean, it was really interesting to hear. I mean, I certainly found myself nodding along with Camille a lot, a lot more often than the other way around. I, I, I guess, I mean, look, Virginia really knows her stuff, okay? I mean, she's quoting Plato and Socrates and all this all this great stuff. But I just come back to kind of like the very pragmatic question that I asked her. I mean, I, I guess I just disagree from like kind of like an assessment perspective as to where we are as a country. The term that I kind of sometimes use is late stage republic. It really does kind of feel that way. It really does feel from my perspective like we are kind of arriving at a breaking point here. And I, I, I just think it really is playing with fire. But very, very, very smart, very uh, informed, engaging discussion. And uh, we're just so happy that we were able to bring it to you, the listener. Let us know what you think. We have an email address, thedebate at newsweek.com, and we will see you next time. This has been The Debate, a podcast brought to you by Newsweek. <laughs>